0: I'm John Moscow.
1: And I'm Amy halpern Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. We have an exciting two-part episode which we will start today and continue next week. Our guests are Dr. Alan Singer, a former New York City High School teacher and a teacher educator at Hofstra University. Dr. Pablo Muriel, a social studies teacher at Alfred E. Smith High School in the Bronx and a cooperating teacher and adjunct also at Hofstra University, and Dennis Bellin-Morales, a Gates Millennium Scholar and recent graduate of Hofstra, where he majored in history, social studies education, and Latino studies. Dennis was Pablo's student at Alfred E. Smith, and both Alan and Pablo's student at Hofstra. Welcome, Alan, Pablo, and Dennis.
0: Alan, Pablo, you recently collaborated on a book titled Supporting Civics Education with Student Activism, Citizens for a Democratic Society. A question for all of you, why teach civics education?
2: Pablo, why don't you start?
3: Well. I think from looking at it from where I am, um, I'm working in the 16th Congressional District, one of the poorest in the nation in the South Bronx. My students are some of the most immediately they're affected by any policy changes that happen at any level of our society. They typically get, they, they feel the effects and there's no, there's no shield or, or filter for them. They, they get whatever they get. Uh, so. When I I finally started to teach my students, uh, you know, and get into these classrooms, I started to notice that many of them have very, very little knowledge of the basic concepts of government. Um, My students, for example, had never been to uh, Washington, D.C. So there's nothing realistically that they connect, you know, taking them to Washington, D.C. Now it's easier to teach something like our our government systems and and, and the buildings and how they're designed and, and so on and so forth. But they when it's that when it's not connected it, it's it's barely understood so we thought and i this is one thing that i saw 20 years ago in 2000 and, uh, 2001 when i worked in as a substitute this is something that i immediately identified a lack of of, of civics uh, of literacy within civics and and citizenship
2: now i approach the civics from two different directions one and i'm a Deweyan. And I believe and I know that students learn through their experience, not from what they're told. So one of the things we stress in the book is that the standards for civics education actually promote student activism as active citizens in their communities, their schools, their nation, because that's how you make knowledge meaningful to students. So that's the first thing second thing, I'm also a citizen. I've been an activist since the 1960s. Civil rights, anti-war, social justice issues. And we're living in a very turbulent time in the United States today. We're, we're living in the era of COVID. We're living in the the Black Lives Matter struggles. We're living in a time of tremendous economic inequality. And we're living in a time where democracy itself is threatened in the United States by authoritarian movements on the right that have included the president. So I'm looking at what's going on in American I'm looking at what's going on in the world, the usual climate change. And I'm saying to myself that we need to promote student activism so they see themselves as agents for change to ensure democracy, to ensure social justice, to ensure climate viability. So unless we find ways to get students to develop the habit of mind where they see themselves as activists, a lot of the things that we value, a lot of things that we cherish are at great risk. I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, and I would like to see the world continue for future generations. Dennis, do you have anything to
1: add to that?
4: Yes, I would like to add that I'm looking at, the, I don't have my own set of students yet. Like, I don't have my own physical classes yet, but Alan and Pablo are both teachers of teachers, so they're teaching me to become a teacher, and what Alan said was true, and I didn't, about, you know, students learning through experience, and I didn't quite get that in high school. Like, I didn't really, you know, I was smart enough to get the Gates Millennial Scholarship and, and things like that, and I was, I didn't really see that opportunity being there, but my experience with civic engagement and looking at it now, looking back and reflecting upon it, I realized that civic engagement is important in the classroom because we as teachers, getting students involved civically, allow each student to manifest their own goals and dreams. And it manifested differently. Pablo simply allowed us, he told us to go to a community board meeting, find out what was going on in your community, which we did. And a lot of us in that class in 2016, became agents of change in our own ways and we had our own goals. My, I was very big on metal detectors and school-to-prison pipeline and this idea of entering into a penitentiary and how school should be more a place to learn. But that's because I like the school building. I like learning. I like reading. But some of my friends looked at it differently. I had a friend named Isaiah Washington, I don't, Isaiah Thomas and Isaiah Washington. I don't know if you remember the Isaiahs, Pablo. But they both had this big thing about nutrition in school buildings and becoming an agents of change in this idea of what are they feeding students who go to lower income schools you know and that's where that's where it manifests so yes our experiences we do learn through our experiences and for me like it helped me realize what I wanted to do in life and like gave me like a goal and it helped my, my friends do the same thing other people became more like artistic you know they wanted to express it through, through art um, I know Pablo has a student who did it through music. You know, our experiences, you know, just simply getting involved in a simple community board meeting, seeing what's going on, and that allows us to, like they both said, it allows us to to see how we can to see that our voices do matter. You know, it gives us that ability, that confidence, you know, like I might have came from the poorest congressional district in the country, right? But I did attain the Gates Millennial Scholarship, right? So and people always looked at me like I was crazy because they said that I wouldn't be able to get that right. The entire, the only person who really believed in me in, in that school was Pablo. Uh, he's the only one that said like, you know, the one. He told me a year before. He told me you're crazy. He said the only problem, the only stress you're gonna have a year from now, is that you know you won't know what university or like scholarship you're gonna accept. And I didn't believe him. I thought he was crazy. I'm um, being honest. I thought he was crazy and that I wasn't gonna be able to to acquire this. And I learned through my experiences with him and and becoming a community organizer that like I do learn better. I did learn my rights better. I did learn everything that I've learned because I was more involved, hands-on. And maybe that's because I learned, but I think all students learn better like that, in my opinion.
1: Very do, Ian. (laughs) Ellen and Pablo, what are the essential components of the approach you recommend in the book? Well,
2: I, I think the first key is you have to start from where students are and the issues that concern them. Uh, you can't impose issues on them. The second, in, in, in this area, Pablo and I took different paths. One of the things that I did in schools is that I would always form a political action club at the school. And the political action club would then engage the kids in the projects. Pablo tended to run the projects through his own classes. Let, let me give you an example of one of the, the most successful projects that I was engaged in. I was teaching about Roe v. Wade in Supreme Court cases. This was a number of years ago when the Supreme Court had a case coming up with a possible review of Roe v. Wade. Four young women in my class came to me and said, they wanted to go to a pro-choice rally in Washington. Could I take them? What I said was I couldn't take them as an individual, but if they raised it with the School Political Action Club, which we called the Forum Club, and the forum club endorsed the participation, I could take them as a faculty advisor to the club. I then went with these four young women to Washington. Well, they raised it with the club. When we came back, they met with the club and they proposed that the club for the next rally in October rent a bus and take large numbers of students. The club endorsed the idea and decided to have a abortion rights reproductive freedom debate. And what they did is we invited a speaker from an anti-abortion group to come one week and from a pro-choice group to come another week. Students organized the presentations, hundreds of kids came to the discussions. And based on that, they were able to fundraise and get a bus to go for their own group. And 42 kids went to Washington for that pro-choice rally. Other time, the club took on the issue of apartheid and they organized forums at the school on the apartheid issue. They organized to support the anti-apartheid campaign. And then when Nelson Mandela came to Yankee Stadium in the spring of 1990, again, they organized to get a bus so they could go to see Nelson Mandela speaking Yankee Stadium because they were anti-apartheid activists and this group of about 30 students at the time took full credit for his release from prison. <laughs> they thought they did it. And what the club did in this case, they had brought in speakers from the ANC to speak at the school, but primarily they coalitioned with our local congressman at the time whose name was Major Owens. So working through this political action club, the students became involved in these things one of the most successful components was they took they took on the issue of condom availability in schools in 1991 testifying at the city council at the board of ed and with a parents coalition they actually succeeded in getting convincing the board of ed to promote condom availability in the high schools so these kids had a tremendous sense of their success as activists, but we primarily worked it through the political action club that then engaged ran programs throughout the school to engage other
3: kids. Now again, Pablo wanted to talk about how you you had a somewhat different approach. So my approach, uh, it's obviously similar to Alan, but I take a much more, I don't want to say less organized. I want to say uh, much more grassroots. The the kids I teach, um, one of the biggest complaints that every teacher has is that uh, lack of parent participation. So in in the school that I work in, you know, I I have to contact the parents, obviously, I have to get through them, but the parents mostly refer me back to the kids. So I I have that going, which is somewhat of a great thing. So anyway, starting off, I think I'm going to go all the way back to when I first started working at University Heights, which is a high school that I mentioned. He, uh, that school, I remember Alan, first of all, I remember. Tell the story about the mice. <laughs> all right, so yeah, that's what I was going with. This is when it all first started. So I went in to teach and, uh, you know, I kept in contact with Alan because I, I wasn't sure if I was going to teach for a long time. I really honestly thought it was going to be two or three years. And I said, I'll try this and let's and, and see if it works. And I used to stay in contact with Alan. And I remember when I first walked into the classroom and I'm teaching and all the kids jump up on the desk. I see the girl scream and jump up at the desk. And I'm thinking that they're running a prank. And it was, uh, one of the girls says, no, it's the, you know, it's the mice. They're always running around. So it's either mice or water bugs, you know? So I said, you can't be serious. So as I'm teaching, and you know, I, I see a mouse run by, it, and, and again, they scream. And, and then they start giving the mice names, like Mickey. You know? it, The school was in disrepair. The auditorium, they used to call it the shish room because it was, it was they used to say, you can't go in there because uh, when it rained, and this is true it would it would leak in in the uh auditorium so the structure was completely it just wasn't sound um there was no no library no no resources so i remember calling alan and saying how am i supposed to do this this is almost impossible and alan turns around and says well what you should do is get them engaged you know start you know getting them involved in their own lives so i said what else do i have to do so let me do this because i i couldn't do that for too long so i started telling the kids, as soon as you go home, guys, I, I, I'm going to do something. I'm going to, and I wrote this into my lesson plan. Go as on your walk home. I want you to identify things that you see that you may not have seen before. For example, and I give one example. I said, none of you can use this. And you cannot say You cannot use this, but you can use other things. And I would say there are no garbage cans in, in front of the school building and therefore garbage accumulates. Right. So the kids were just trying to find different things, but they couldn't use that one. And so, eventually they came back and they started telling them what do we do and and then I, at the same time I, it, it's a it's a US history course and I have I'm teaching them about you know, the structure of government so I so who's in charge of this so now I got them to first we' going identify who's in charge who are the people in charge with so well, this was a class lesson but it was so engaging because it was about what they were bringing into class and so as they as they are as we're analyzing this in class and how we talk to these people my position at that point is, okay, who, who do you guys want to contact and why? So they're, they're doing the research and they're telling you why they want to contact them. Okay, now everyone's going to write a letter. Now here's what we're going to do. Um, you guys are going to deliver it. And whoever can't deliver it, you're going to uh, mail it in. And so most of the class decided to deliver it. Uh, and I remember they delivered it to the assemblyman who then got this other gentleman involved who was another assembly person. And so we got them to come in. Uh, you know, we did a town hall meeting, and they spoke to the college. And uh, ultimately, we, we were able to secure several million dollars from the city and the DOE to fix up the the classrooms. And and so we ended up getting a brand new uh, auditorium. We ended up getting a library. We we got a bunch of uh even a new cafeteria and a, and a bunch of, even a, a labs for for science and new classrooms. And the school was there since 1981. And this is 2008, and 2008 they come to us and say, "Well, we, we love what you've done with the building in the last two years. You guys repaired; they made it very nice." In 2009, they came and said, "Well, now you have to go. You got to find a place to go." And, I, and I, I was shocked. And I said, "What?" And uh, they said, it they- Community College.
2: Now that the building was fixed because of the student campaign, wanted the building back and wanted the high school out."
3: Yes. And, and that became a campaign. So I remember calling Alan again and saying, Alan, we fought. We did all this. And now the kids are losing the building. I mean, this is even the teachers are disheartened at this point because the teachers were part of this. Everyone was kind of getting involved in this. And so we decided, Alan, Alan turns around and says, well, let's turn this into another civic lesson. I said, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. And I started to, we, we started to combine our ideas and and came up with, well, Actually, we were invited to, I was invited to a PEP meeting, but I was so frustrated that I said, hey, kids, how would you guys like to see how a PEP meeting works? PEP? Pablo, what's a PEP meeting? Uh, Bloomberg put a panel for educational policy, which was a rubber stamp uh, from 2000. He started them, I think, in 2008 or nine, And it just, it, it they were a rubber stamp for closing schools and reopening them. Uh, reopening new schools, and it was more, I believe it was, it was to create space for charter schools. Uh, but that's just my personal belief. Although data, you know, kind of supports my theory in that sense. But I started going to the PP meetings and questioning them. And then we figured out that the PP meeting was a lie. It, it, it was a straight front. When I would go to the microphone, uh, they wouldn't be listening. They'll have a, a Pepsi bottle up. They'll just be talking to one another and sort of kind of uh, being very dismissive of the community. And that was in the Bronx. So then I said, you know what, I'm gonna turn this into a lesson. And I started inviting kids with me to the PP meeting. And the first one was in Brooklyn Tech, which ended up uh, because the UFT asked uh, how many people want to go, I said, I'm gonna go. And I I said, I'm gonna go by myself. And I asked my my kids who were part of of participation in government. I said, how would you guys like to see government in action? So I'm gonna go to the PP meeting and we knew what it was. and I'm gonna be in, in Brooklyn Tech. If some of you wanna come, That'll be great. You can write it up, and I'll give you some extra credit. You know, I'm thinking three kids are going to show up. I had over 60, 70 kids show up from the Bronx to the PEP meeting. We ended up on Channel 11 That was when Kathy Black was actually being, getting booed, and she was booed. At, those were my kids. Uh, they kind of Just a
0: clarification for people who may not know, listeners who may not know Kathy Black, do you want to give well,
3: a... Kathy Black was the, the, the Betsy DeVoe of New York City for Bloomberg. So uh, that's the best way to put it, I think. She was the person in charge, uh, our commissioner of, of education here, our chancellor, and she was a businesswoman who came from a magazine world, or or not even, I think it was a, the, the modeling world or something on those lines. it was business. She had nothing to do with education, but she was selected for the position by Bloomberg at the time. Uh,
0: she only lasted a
3: couple of months
0: because. Yeah, it yeah, was I mean, it lasted
3: a couple of months because I didn't know this. But my kids kept going to PP meetings because they found it a lot of fun. And then they met other people, organizations, and they started to get involved. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. They used to come back and bring pictures. And I used to just, like, uh, email them to Alan because like, I thought it was funny. You know, I'm thinking this is fun. But it's, I know it's a learning experience. But I'm, I'm having fun with the fact that the kids are having fun. So the fact that the kids are enjoying themselves, but it's, it's a purely organic learning experience I think that's what made the, the vast difference in these things. So,
0: anyway, let me just ask first, just out of curiosity, which was the college that was trying to get it back, and secondly, were you successful?
3: Okay, no, no. <laughs> there it goes. So, the Bronx Community, it was the Bronx Community College. The the high school was inside of the Bronx Community College. And this was covered by by some some newspapers. Alan was was following it because he was a Huff, he was writing about in the Huffington Post at the time. So. Alan would be like my microphone, like, Alan, I need you for this because here's what's happening down here. No one's paying attention. And so uh, when they came, I turned, you know, not myself. I can't say it was myself. It, it was all of us. Alan included. My, you know, I'll call Alan. I'll get ideas. Um, you know, the, the principal was very open at the time. You know, uh, we need help. Let's see if we can stay around. So we turned it into a civics lesson, which is perfect. And, the kids were contacting news reporters and they were contacting uh, the the DOE. And then the last time they did two PEP meetings. The first one, they did a PEP meeting at our school and they showed up the PEP. And and this is written somewhere in one of the smaller newspapers. The largest hall they had, uh, which is uh, Memorial Hall, where they do all their gatherings, it was filled to capacity to the point where it did not fit one more person. And we're talking about a school with only at the time 435 students. It still has 435 students. And every parent, communities came out and fought. They they sort of came out and, and they pretended and then they were still moving forward. So then uh, they figured the last PEP meeting was held in Staten Island because it was so convenient for us to get there. So... <laughs> so... I, you know, I, I I told the kids, listen, I'm going to go. I'm going to go by train and, you know, bus and ferry. I'm, I'm going to do the whole thing. If you guys are interested, ask your parents. Bring permission slips. But I really can't take you guys. Uh, I'm only going to take a handful of kids because, you know, and, and by the way, it's after school, so you don't have to come. I, I'm going. Over 100 and I mean, over 200 people showed up, kids uh, on trains. We took, but I, By myself, I took about 75 kids came with me. I felt like I was taking like three or four uh, train carts. We took a good portion of the part of that ferry, and a bunch of parents took their kids, and teachers took kids, and and, uh, and so when we got to Staten Island, we demanded to know, and and Klein gave us an answer. Klein at the time was the chancellor, and Klein said, he replaced Black. Oh, uh, oh no, no, at, well no, Kathy Black was out by by then. Yeah, and Klein replaced. And her. Klein replaced yeah. her, and then when we got there, Klein who replaced Black uh, after a couple of months told us that there was nothing that he can do, that the best that could happen was to... I'm sorry, no, no, uh, yeah, Black re- replace Klein. I-, I think that's how it was, uh, because I remember, okay, we were in Staten Island during Klein, and then shortly after, we kept going to PEP meetings, because. Uh, but that was the last one for our school, and he told us very straightforward. He said, that there was nothing we could do. The college doesn't want to help, and so the best we could do is put you in a school with one other school... But it's across the street from, and he didn't tell us this. We figured this out on our own. It was across the street from a juvenile detention center, which is still there. The school's still there. What separates University Heights right now from New Horizons is is the two train, the two and the five train. So that's it. And and they're literally across the street. So the whole fight, when we went to fight, it was how dare you, you know, put us there. And the response was, this is all we can do. So we lost that fight. And so, you know, that brings me to the dentist later on, Others,
2: I think it's important, let me just comment on that thing. You don't win every struggle. And I think that that itself is an important lesson that you don't win the struggle is not a reason to stop struggling because you. you're gonna win some, but you can't win if you don't
0: keep pushing. So I have a question on a somewhat different tack which is that some social studies or history teachers are very open with their students about their political perspectives. Others prefer students not to have any idea of their personal views. What do you see as as the arguments? And this is for all all three of you. What do you see as the arguments for each of these? And as teachers, do you share your political views with your students? My view
2: is if we're having a discussion, if my... adding my voice to the discussion opens it up, then it's a value. If my adding my voice closes it down, then it defeats the purpose of having the discussion. So I try to be judicious on that. You know, kids will ask, one project I did, I always used to bring a Vietnam vet in to discuss his, it was always were guys, his experience in Vietnam. And I told the students, one day we're going to have a Vietnam vet come in and discuss what it meant to be engaged in the war. And then the next day we're going to have an anti-war protester come in who's going to explain why they were opposed to the war. And you're going to interview both of them to find out what their experiences were. So the first day we would have the veteran come in and the students would interview the veteran to find out, what the experiences were, what they learned. And then the second day, the students would come in because they they were anxious to interview the anti-war protester. And they would say, Alan, where's the speaker today? And I would say, I'm the speaker. (laughs) And they would interview me, and I would share my ideas. But that opened them up to new experiences and thoughts. But on other issues, I wouldn't. Save my position. However, one of the ways I would introduce a broader perspective for them was on my selection of documents. So you can bring, a teacher can bring in a document that introduces them to ideas. You don't have to say, I agree with that document, but Frederick Douglass on to what is the slave is the 4th of July or any of the documents in that, Howard's invoices of the American people there's a, a very good letter by a couple whose uh, son died in 2001 and they and they say, don't go to Iraq, not in our name. Or you can do the Robert Byrd piece on, this will go down in, in infamy in history. So you don't have to say, this is what I believe, but you can introduce students to different perspectives just based on the documents introduced in class.
3: As, as for me, from the high school level and looking at younger kids and, and where I work, to be very sincere with you, that is one of the least of, of my issues because my kids aren't even interested in politics when they come to my room. They're not interested in, they want a credit and they're used to certain social studies habits and ways and that's what they know and they really don't know politics at all. So in 20 years, I've never have been asked, well, what are your political views, Pablo? I, I wanted to explore. So my thing is, I, as long as you're inquisitive and you're looking, you know, I, it doesn't matter which way you go. So I have one, one student, for example, and he knew my stance on, you know, because through discussions as Alan City, he, he knew my stance on, on, on military and, and he knew my stance on, on certain issues. And he knew, you know, I, I would fall more on the left side. And, and he was one of these very, very witty young men who was with me from 10th grade through 12th. Still, he decided to go to the military. And then he, uh, he went to the military after uh, two, two tours. He came back and um, very conservative. And, and, and I remember having a discussion with him, uh, God bless soul. he was a University Heights student and he passed away of cancer in 2013, after uh, 2014 I went, uh, I went to his wake. And, and he, was, uh, he, he became conservative, he was very conservative. But he was one of those kids that was very close to me. I didn't care whether you decided to go conservative or left or, I care that you get civically engaged and change your situation. And so my goal is to get them as civically engaged as possible so that they're no longer looking to who's going to solve their problems, but rather I know how to solve my problem. I've done this before. Let me go about, you know, making this change that will help me and will help my family. And so that's sort of where I stand. But as far as the political views, I I don't see a reason to bring them up unless, unless it's part of the discussion
2: very important, just to add to that. If kids believe something because I said it, then next year they're going to believe whatever the next person says. You don't have that kind of impact. I'm not looking to recruit an army of 16-year-olds. I'm looking to get 16-year-olds to begin to think about their world. The one question that kids always used to ask me when we got to the 1960s was not about my political position, but they all want to know whether I use drugs. (laughs) And my answer was always the same. And I would always say, there are many things that I've done in my life, some of which I'm proud of, and some of which I'm not, but none of which I will discuss with you.
0: (laughs) Dennis, did you have thoughts on, on what Pablo and Alan have been saying?
4: I agree with both of them, but I have, like, my perspective is that Like, when I put myself in the classroom, like, and I'm going to talk to the students, and my goal, obviously, is to get them politically involved and to understand, uh, to read more, to understand politics, because, like, you know, that's part of, that should, and it should be completely embedded in the curriculum and, like, stated that students should, especially if you're, like, students learn about politics, like, the last year before they graduate, they learn it in probably, like, U.S., government and uh economics for me i would always keep like what i have learned in it is uh, kids are always trying to stir away from you know either learning like in terms of like they don't want to they want to learn more about truth try distracting things like that my whole thing is that i want to keep the conversation the dialogue within the students because my perspective on like I'm, i'll be a lot older than them by then by the time i'm teaching but and if i'm like alan for example i'm if he goes into a classroom with eighth graders and ninth graders, you know, his political stance or my political stance won't align with them in about 20 years from now, because, you know, we're, we're not, we're not in the same generation. I want to keep the conversation between the students with all my lessons. I want to keep it between students because my way is that they're going to be the ones growing up with each other. They're the ones that are going to need to, to help one another. They're going to one that need to understand that some people will have different opinions and they need to be able to express themselves without getting mad. Like Pablo said, my goal is to teach in a low income area. So, like, like what Pablo was doing, and I won't really probably won't have that kind of question asked me, like, oh, who do you, you know, are you going for Bernie? Like, they'll be like, who's Bernie Sanders, you know, or who's like, you're going to ask me, like, oh, who's Joe Biden, right? It's so, like those questions are the ones that we're going to actually have to go into. And then from there, I'm moving into like, you know, what do these students understand from what we're learning in class? And I want to keep the, the dialogue not on me, but on them because they're the focus, you know, I'm here to teach them. So that I feel, that's how I feel that the the conversation should be towards them and whether I believe, whether what I believe in or not doesn't affect their decisions 10 years from now or when they decide to finally become politically involved. And my whole goal is for them to just understand politics and become involved, like make sure when they turn 18 vote. You know, my goal is to be like, uh, Pablo always has it. I don't know if he still does it, well obviously because of Corona, but he always had a stack a voter registration, like a big stack right on his desk. And whenever a kid turned 18, he'd be like, you should go vote. You know, like, if you want to vote, he'd be like, go grab one, it's on my desk. You know, my goal is to make sure that they're politically involved, keep a discussion between them, and keep them, you know, so they can understand that they have to respect each other. And it's basically just to uh, usher them into adulthood and usher them into becoming productive members of a growing society. So I need them to understand, I need to work and collab. My opinion has nothing to do with their political standpoints or how involved they become in politics. That's how I feel, though.
1: Alan and Pablo, have any of your students proposed action projects that you found unethical or offensive? And if so, how did you handle it? That's a very good question.
2: I've been challenged based on that by faculty members in my schools when I was a high school teacher. When the Forum Club organized the reproductive freedom dialogues with the two speakers, and then went to Washington. There were faculty members that accused me of brainwashing the kids. And they said, well, you took them to Washington for the pro-choice rally, but you wouldn't have taken them to an anti-abortion rally. And I said, first of all, the Forum Club is the club that brought in a speaker to speak with students about anti-abortion. This was a speaker from a group called Birthright. But not only that, when the original group of students approached me, I said that I couldn't take them unless it was supported by the club. And then I made arrangements for them to go to Washington. I went with them with uh, Queens College. And what I would do if there were students in the club who wanted, for example, and there were students who did not believe in abortion rights, it's not my responsibility to take them to the rally, but it's my responsibility to make it possible for them to attend a rally. So I could then either enlist a teacher at the school who was opposed to abortion, or I once again, I could make arrangements with a Queens College group, that was the local college, that they could attend with Queens College. So my responsibility was to make it possible for students to participate but I did not necessarily have to attend with
3: them. Right. for me, I don't think I've ever had any proposed. Uh, you know, you know, when the kids are goofing off during dialogue, they'll say something. But even when they do say something, it, they they know. I, I don't know. I've never I've never encountered that problem in all these years. That that's an interesting one. I've never had a kid say. I think again, it's because my kids are not engaged at all. So when they get to me, it's almost like I'm starting from new. So I don't think I've ever had that situation where a kid suggested an inappropriate. I, I did have another incident. There was a rally against racism
2: in Howard Beach, Queens many years ago, because a mob of white young men attacked two black men who were car had broken down. And one of them ended up running on the highway and getting killed. There was a rally demanding racial justice and I was attending with the local, a local community group. And the club raised whether they could come. And I said to the club, I didn't think I could bring you, I couldn't guarantee your safety. So there were club members that were very disappointed that if I couldn't guarantee safety, they couldn't come. However, I said, there is gonna be a rally at City Hall. And that'll be during the day, this was an evening rally. There'll be different circumstances. If people want in the club want to organize, I will take you to that rally. But I can't take you to a rally where I can't guarantee your safety as an adult, as your teacher.
1: And you've never encountered students who were racist or with whom you
4: would
3: have... Yeah, but see, uh, my racism is different from what Alan would experience uh, because the racism that we experience at our school is along the lines of, the school is 99% minority. So it's all Latinos and African American. So the the racism that I'm catching as a teacher is amongst the Spanish kids that are just entering because they have a misconception of race in, you know, certain groups that I'm getting, you know, from where they come from. They're very open with their racism and They themselves may be of color, of of what the majority would consider black or or even people of color, but they don't believe so. So in Spanish, they would say little racist comments, which I in turn, I speak, I'm bilingual. I correct them immediately. So I make sure, and I turn their racist comments into complete lessons. And so I'm gonna give you a fine example. You know, I teach, I have a very, uh, I have for the past, I wanna say 12 years, I've had a, a 13 years. I've had a larger population of Dominican kids from the Dominican Republic, and so I remember when this first happened in the early 2000s. I want to say 2005, 2006, where a kid said in Spanish uh, something very racist, and and I stopped and I said, "Excuse me," and then he said, "What are you getting mad about? You're not black." And I said, it "Doesn't matter," and then I had to start explaining it to him. But then he gave me this whole lesson that he learned in his country, and I said, "Wait, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense." So it kind of forced me. To go learn about the Dominican Republic, and then I learned about Trujillo and I learned about what he did in, in the Dominican Republic. And then it just so happens, you know, several years later, Howard Gates, William Howard Gates, does this whole thing of black in, in the Caribbean. And everything that I learned, I actually now, now it's easier for me to teach if I ever need to. But I can actually show that video, but I had to learn about their culture and their society and what they went through. And I also had to you know, understand that they've been taught in a way that needs to be untaught. So, you know, first thing I gotta gotta teach them is stop. Black people are not Haitians. The Haitians are in in Haiti, which is part of the the island, but blacks here are black Americans. And and those blacks are not black Americans. Those are uh, Hondurian and they're Garifanos. So that's another group that I have to learn about because uh, they face racism, but in their culture, they tend to sort of blend into others. So what I mean by that is the black Hondurians, you would think are African-American and, and they will act and they will take the culture. And then the, the lighter skinned ones will, will be Puerto Rican and they will act and take the culture until within the, those cultures, you start seeing the differences. So they face a lot of discrimination in, in the, in the Hondurian world of the Garifanos. And so I had to learn about that coach and learn about their history in order to teach those particular students, because you've got to start from where they're from and their reality and then unteach certain things that you must reteach here.
0: I'm actually, what you were just talking about, especially in terms, say, of relationships between Dominicans and Haitians, where obviously the two countries, you know, have a very, you know, complex history, and also where issues of color have have very strongly played a role in that. Um, you find that, and that's just one example, obviously, there are examples from literally every single country in the world. What's been your experience, Pablo, in terms of, of breakthroughs of somebody, say, who's a dark-skinned Dominican who doesn't see him or herself as black, but also makes racist comments about
3: Haitians? Okay. What have you found in terms of your ability to help people change how they think about it? It's things? interesting, I have one on Facebook that we him and I talk all the time. Uh, he's a black uh, Dominican. There was like that. And interesting enough, and, and I'm not saying anyone has to do this. Or any, It's just what it really just happened. And he married an African-American uh, female and had uh, babies. So he considers himself now Afro-Dominican. And he still has a very thick accent uh, because he got here when he was maybe uh, 12 or 13. And uh, now he's like, I, I believe he's 30 or 31. And he's married with, with two kids. And, uh, so I've seen it in the, in those respects. I've also seen... In schools where the, the teachers themselves intervene and enforce the little breakups, I've seen a lot of success in those schools. The schools where no one intervenes and it's almost like left to, you know, because obviously these are Spanish kids and, you know, they're living their country, their homeland, which, you know, hey, you're used to like beaches and palm trees. Now you're coming to snow and like this craziness, you, you know, you can't even imagine what they're going through. So uh, unfortunately, when these kids get here, Sometimes they just go kind of like try to gravitate towards one another and which is great, but teachers need to step up. And one of the problems we're having, we don't have enough bilingual teachers. We just don't. And the bilingual teachers are stuck in in, in classrooms that are completely removed from every other classroom and they sometimes get stuck on those lines. So there needs to be what I've seen completely integrated schools in in both race, class, gender, and uh, language. I've seen that a lot of breakthroughs, a lot, but also you will get uh, some kids that have problems with their parents. You know, they'll they'll have, of course, conflict at home because it it goes completely against what the family is, the dinner conversations, you know, it kind of, so that's where the the sort of sometimes the pushback comes, yes.
2: The way I tried to address it was by creating a sense of classroom community and saying, We are people who are exploring our world and acting on it together. And so in this community, there were two rules. And I said, the rules are based on the teachings of uh, Professor Franklin. And they would say, well, who's Professor Franklin? I said, don't you know Professor Aretha Franklin? (laughs) And these are the two rules. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me and think think before you act and in our community, if we respect each other and we think before we act, we can do wonderful things and learn
3: together. And by the way, by the way, let me just add this, because I have to piggyback on that, what Alan said. The reason that I've never dealt with overt racism in the classroom or any of those things is because what Alan just said, the respect part. That's, those, that's the thing that I do in my classes from the day that I walk in, Um, you know, I give them my three rules. I only have three rules. I I do not believe in setting so many rules that the kid is running around trying to figure out how to break them rather than (laughs) learn what you're trying to teach So rules to me are, are, you know, I I live on a concept of the trust system. Like I I literally have always lived my life on that system. And so I brought that into the classroom. And so I tell the kids from day one, first, I'm going to respect you, but respect is reciprocal. I expect you to be respectful to me. That's number one. Number two, when someone is speaking, they must respect one another. And so you'll see me sit down and listen to them because they're the teacher in the classroom at the moment. So you disrespecting them goes back to disrespecting me because that's the teacher in the classroom. And then rule number three is I will never say no to go to the bathroom, just one person at a time. And that's it. And don't take too long. I added that 15 years ago. Just I remember adding it one year just to try it, and it became my norm forever. I still do it to this day. And I'm talking 9th through 12th grade, South Bronx, and I've never had an issue. The, the kids really take respect to heart.
1: And we'll break here and continue next week with strategies for integrating project-based learning with the Regents and tips for new teachers. Thank you, listeners. If you like this episode, please continue subscribing and giving us a rating or a review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Till part two next week.